Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. Whether you are here in the room or you are online, we're really, really glad that you're here. Um, last week, I told you about Serve the City, okay? A three-day opportunity to be the hands and feet of Christ in our community by volunteering. And I told you, hey, we built the partnerships, okay? We set up the online link. We teed the ball up. We handed you a club, and we said, now you've got to swing the club. And you guys swung the club, all right? You guys crushed the ball, 300 yards, middle of the fairway, incredible shot. We had 73 individuals invest over 200 volunteer hours in our community over the last three days. We need to give a big round of applause for that. It was amazing. Man, we did all kinds of stuff. We, uh, we had a group of people that packed 239 care bags for the homeless population here in Charlottesville. In those bags, it's got things like, man, uh, man, personal hygiene products. It's got all kinds of different healthy snacks. It has a, a, a pocket-sized copy of the Gospel of John. It has resources about, man, if you need man, help in different ways, here are the places that you can find it. Here's what we're going to do. At the end of the service, we've got them all right outside this door. We got them outside this door so that you, we, you can leave and you can grab a couple, put them in your car, and you can hand them out this week as you drive around town. Because here's the big idea of Serve the City. You ready? I'm excited that we spent three days volunteering in our community, but that's not the finish line for us. That's the starting line. You see, the purpose of Serve the City is that it would mobilize us and inspire us and catalyze us to be the hands and feet of Christ 365 days of the year, to take the gospel in word and in deed into our community. And so that is my prayer for our church, that Serve the City this year would just be fuel on the fire of what God is already doing and that we would grow in our heart for mercy ministry here in our city so that more people can both hear the good news of the gospel and see it lived out through Jesus' church. Okay, so if you would, man, just join me in praying that that would be true, and then we're going to jump into Mark chapter 4. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came in word and you came in deed, that your deed ministry validated your word ministry. We want to be a church like that. So Lord, I thank you for all the people that invested so much time and energy into serve the city of the last three days, and I pray that it would be fuel for us. It would be fuel for us that would make us care about people and care about our community more and more like you do, that we would have a deep heart for mercy ministry, that we would be passionate about proclaiming the gospel in word and in deed. So God, help us to do that. Help us to be a church like that. And as we open up your word to Mark chapter four, God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to believe what you have for us from your word? We love you and pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Today's topic is sanctification. Sanctification, spiritual growth, Christian maturity, gospel growth, whatever you want to call it, it's about you and me becoming more like Jesus. Okay, that is the topic today. And it is a massively important and relevant topic for a couple reasons. First, because it has fallen on such hard times in the church. Okay, the church just doesn't talk that much about maturity anymore. The church doesn't talk that much about repenting of sin, believing in Christ, becoming more like him. The number one thing that people say to me when they learn I'm the pastor of Center Church is, quote, oh, I hear you guys talk about sin there. And I'm like, I think that's good. I'm not sure how I should feel about that. But there's just the reality that not many churches today, to our detriment, talk about holiness. We just don't talk about it enough, so we need to talk about it more. That's the first reason it's important. Second reason is that there is nothing that is more important for our witness as a people than sanctification. In the midst of a world that increasingly thinks Christian beliefs are ridiculous, the most powerful thing that someone can encounter is a truly godly man, woman, or teenager. Because see, when you encounter a truly godly person, do you know what happens? Caricatures start to fall flat. And all of a sudden, that thing you saw on Netflix that made Christians look really crazy, you're like, well, well, she's not crazy, and she's not a bigot, and she's not judgmental or hateful. Actually, she's a lot like what I wish I was. 
You see, so if we're going to have an effective witness in our culture today, we have to get serious about sanctification. We have to pursue Christ-likeness. So that's the second reason. Here's the third reason. It's for your joy. You see, the confession and the argument and the claim of the scriptures is that there is joy in becoming like Jesus, that actually true, abiding, lasting joy in your life, the joy that you want, the joy that you're looking for and all of the other things you're pursuing is actually found in becoming more like Jesus, that you were created in the image of God to be like God, and when you pursue the image of God in Christ, you experience joy. So sanctification is massively important. It's massively important, but it's often massively misunderstood. Right, we have all these crazy ideas about sanctification. So what we're going to do is we're just going to look at what Jesus had to say about it, which is always a good idea. Okay, we're going to go to Mark chapter 4. Jesus is going to tell a couple of parables that are going to explain how the kingdom of God grows in our lives and in the world. So kingdom of God, growth, kind of personal sanctification, same idea. Okay, and a parable is, is a simple earthly story with a profound heavenly meaning. A simple earthly story with a profound heavenly meaning. So we're going to look at some of these parables. We're going to dig into them and see what they have to teach us about sanctification in our lives today. All right, look at verse 21 with me. It says this, And he, Jesus, said to them, the crowd, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand. So think a lamp, you know, shining in a room. He says, For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, here's the first thing that we learn about sanctification. Number one, the source of your sanctification is the light of Christ. The source of your sanctification is the light of Christ. When you first read this parable, you will probably be tempted to do what I did, which to, is to assume you're the lamp, right? Like, I'm the lamp, I'm the light, I need to let it shine so people know about Jesus. This little light of mine, I'm a, right? We know that song. Like, that's what we think. And the reason is that Jesus teaches that in other places, okay? That's not what he's teaching here. And we need to be careful we don't just see lamp and think like, I guess I, in some weird way I'm the lamp and maybe the world is the room and I'm supposed to, sh I don't know, right? What does this mean? It's not what he's teaching. Let's look at it real carefully. Here's what he says. Do you bring a lamp into a room and put it under a bed? The obvious answer is no, right? Why not? Because the purpose of a lamp is to bring light into a room, is to uh, push back darkness so that what was hidden in the room can be seen and what was previously a secret can be revealed. Okay, we tracking? Now, let me ask you a question. Do you have the ability to drive back darkness? Do you have the ability to reveal things in other people or in yourself that are hidden? You don't. Who does have the ability? Jesus Christ does. And you've experienced this if you've ever been reading the Bible before and you were not anticipating working on a particular area of your life and then you're like, uh-oh, right? It's like, bam, he got you. Like the Holy Spirit's like that. And you're like, I didn't even realize that about myself, right? That is the light of Christ shining into the room of your life. Jesus said of himself in John chapter eight, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Here's what this means. In this parable, Jesus is the lamp and the room is your life. You track it with me now? Jesus is the lamp, and the room is your life. So here's the question that Jesus is asking, where am I in the room of your life? Where am I in the room of your life? I'm the lamp, and what I do is I push back darkness, and I reveal things that are hidden so that light can come in, and truth and life, where am I in your life? Am I on a stand in the middle of the room, shining light on all areas of your life, or have you obscured me? Have you taken a basket and put it over top of the lamp? Have you taken the lamp and put it under the bed so that it shines on some areas of your life, but not other areas that are off limits? That's a little bit abstract, so think about it like tan lines, okay? It's the summer. This is a good illustration. All right, what's a tan line? A tan line is when part of your body is exposed to the light and another part isn't, right? I get them right here, shirt, shirt sleeves, you know, classic dad move. I look like a 39-year-old dad all the time, right? 
I just have the sun changes this part of my arm to be one color, and this part of my arm remains a different color. What happened? The part of my body that was exposed to the light was changed. The part of my body that was not exposed to the light remained the same. Friends, that exact same thing happens in your spiritual life. Whatever areas of our lives we bring into the light of Christ will be transformed by him, but whatever areas we keep out of the life of Christ will remain the same. Whatever we keep secret, whatever we keep out of the life, light will not be changed by Christ. So here's the question, where do you have spiritual tan lines? What part of your life, what part of your body are you saying, no, you can't come there. You can't shine on this part of my life. I am keeping this under a basket. You can shine over here, but you can't shine on my finances. You can't shine on my calendar, my career goals, the way that I intake media, my relationship to my phone, my relationship to my parents, my relationship to my roommates. You can't shine on this part. You certainly can't shine on my sexual desires. You certainly can't shine on all these areas. That's what Jesus is asking us. He's pressing upon us. I'm the lamp. I'm the light of the world. Whatever you bring into the light, I will transform. So what are you keeping hidden? What are you keeping hidden? That's what this parable is about. Now, maybe right now, something just came to mind for you. You're like, dang it. <laughs> like, it's in there. You're trying to put it out of your head. But you know, this is the area. This is the area for you. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. This is what Jesus wants you to bring into the light. So, so what do you do? What do you do now? Well, that's what you bring it into the light. What does that look like? Man, you, you confess it to a brother or sister in Christ. Man, you confess it to Christ. You say, look, I've been keeping this area off limits to you. Man, that's wrong. I want to stop doing that. I want to be informed by your word on this area of my life. I want to bring it to the light. If you do that, Christ will start to change you. And that area of your life will start to be transformed into the image of Jesus. And there's another word for the process I'm describing. You know what the word is? Authenticity. Authenticity. Man, don't we all long to be authentic? Don't we all want to be more transparent in our relationships? Don't we hate like acting like everything is okay when on the inside we're dying? So what keeps us from being authentic? What keeps us from bringing actually what's going on in our lives into the light of community, into the light of the church, into the light of the gospel? I think it's fear. I think it's fear. Here's, here's what I think. We long for light, but fear keeps us in the dark. Because this is what we tell ourselves. If I tell someone I'm battling depression, they'll, they'll reject me. If I tell someone that I'm struggling with an eating disorder, if I'm experiencing same-sex attraction, my marriage is on the rocks, man, I'm in crushing consumer debt. If I tell someone, they will judge me. They won't look at me the same way. They'll shame me. They'll reject me. You see, I think we all long for the light, but fear keeps us in the dark. It feels safer to just keep it under the basket. And to say, I'm going to keep that area off limits because I just don't know if my friends can handle it. I don't know if my church family can handle it. I, God, I don't know if God can handle it. The good news of the gospel is that it sets us free from that kind of fear. Let me read you from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 8. This is what it says. Speaking of your salvation, if you're a Christian, in him, Christ, we have redemption. That means we've been redeemed out of the, the darkness. We've been brought into the light. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches, riches of his grace, hear me, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. That means there is no struggle, secret, or sin that God doesn't already know about. There is no struggle, secret, sin, or shame in your life, in your past, in your present, in your future, 
that God didn't know fully about when he chose to give up his son Jesus Christ so that you could be forgiven. Here's what this means. God can never be disenamored with you because he was never enamored in the first place. It's not like God is thinking that you're one thing and then he's shocked when you're not. Like, aren't we so afraid of being found out as an imposter, as a fraud? That can never happen with God because he sees the whole picture and in all wisdom and insight, he chose. He chose to send Christ. Christ chose to die for you so that you could be forgiven. Friends, that means in Christ you are fully known and in Christ you are fully loved. And that is a radical reorientation. And when that truth goes deep into your heart, do you know what it does? It gives you courage. It gives you courage to bring things out of the dark that have been in the dark for a very long time, that have been in the dark since you were a teenager, that have been in the dark since that thing happened with your parents, that have been in the dark since that guy said that thing. And it gives you the courage to bring that stuff out of the dark and into the light and say, Jesus, I want you to change me. And I need your church to help me. In the gospel, we are fully known, and in the gospel, we are fully loved. So the light of Christ exposes our need for sanctification, but then the light of Christ also provides the power for sanctification. What a wonderful parable. That's the first thing that we learn. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 24, and he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's the second thing that we learned. Number two, your desire for sanctification determines your pace of sanctification. Your desire for sanctification determines your pace of sanctification. So in 24 and 25, Jesus doesn't tell a parable, but he just kind of provides a general spiritual principle. He said, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When you read the word measure, think like measuring cup, okay? You know, like a cup measure in your kitchen. Here's how it worked in the first century. When you went to the market, you would take different sized measures. So just small, medium, large for our purposes, all right? And you would get as much product as the measure that you use. So, hey, I would like a large measure of wheat. You give the merchant a large measure. He fills it up. You take it home. You pay for it. You following with me? Whatever measure you used determined how much product you received. So here's what Jesus is saying. Very simple illustration. Pay attention because you'll receive as much as you ask for. Pay attention, because you'll receive as much as you ask for. If you come to Jesus with a large measure, you will receive a lot of Jesus. If you come to Jesus with a very small measure, you will receive a very small amount of Jesus. What determines how much you grow, what determines the pace of your sanctification, is your desire for it. If you come spiritually hungry with an attitude of teach me, you will receive a lot. But if you come disinterested and distracted, you will not receive very much. What you put in is what you get out. I mean, every high school teacher in America knows this, right? You teach the same content, same class, same presentation. You've got the students that are eager to learn, that want to learn, and they learn a lot. You've got the students that are disinterested, and they don't learn much at all. Your desire for sanctification determines your pace of sanctification. If you're eager for Christian community here at our church, if you'll come to the weekender, if you'll join a missional community, if you'll jump into a DNA group or start one, hear me, you will experience deep, meaningful, transformative Christian community. You will. But if you don't want Christian community that much, if you just, if all you do is kind of come on Sunday, you know, two or three times a month, you will not experience deep, meaningful Christian community. And the issue is not with our church. The issue is with your desire. You see, sometimes people come to me and they say, I just can't get connected to any churches. 
I'm like, I, man, I get that. I know that can be hard. That can be painful. And I said, well, tell me about, like, you know, what have, how have you tried to get connected? They say, well, like, I was going to this one for a while, but, like, you know, I traveled a lot, so that was there, like, once a month. And, you know, then it didn't seem like a lot of the people were like me, so I didn't, like, go to any groups. And, you know, after a couple months, I just felt like I can't get connected here. I'm like, look, you're not going to be able to get connected anywhere if that's what happens. Like, it doesn't matter if there's 10 people in the church. It's not going to work, right? Our ability to grow in Christ is determined by our desire to grow in Christ. If you're eager to learn more about the Bible, you will learn more about the Bible. If you are eager to learn how to pray, if you're eager to become more generous, if you're eager to learn how to share your faith, how to lead people, you will. You'll grow, you'll grow in those things. But if you're not eager, you won't. To be honest with you, eagerness is one of the primary things that we look for when we're looking for future leaders. Man, who shows up? Who raises their hand? Who says, I'll do it, I'll try, I'll, I don't know how to do that, but I'll give it my best shot. Man, I wanna learn, I'm hungry. I wanna become more like Christ. That's who I want. Man, a man or woman or student who's hungry to grow, we wanna invest in them. Why? Because even if they don't know the Bible that well, we can teach it, we can teach it to them. If they don't know how to lead people, we can teach them how to lead people. What I can't teach you is want to. That's a theological term, want to. I can't put eagerness into you. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, pay attention, because if you've been engaging with the church in what I would call a very typical American nominal way, you will not get very much of Jesus. And actually what he says in this passage is eventually you'll lose what you have. It's kind of a, it's a little bit of a solemn warning. The spiritually rich get richer, the spiritually poor get poorer. That is what Jesus is saying. So here's the question that we all need to ask ourselves. How much do I want it? How much do I want it? How much do you want to be like Jesus? How eager are you for it? How hungry are you? How passionate are you about becoming more like your Savior? How zealous are you? That is what Jesus is asking. And I'll be honest, that's very challenging. It should be. Because the truth is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we are eager for a lot of other things much more than we're eager for sanctification. Man, we're eager to advance the Advance the ladder at work, aren't we? That's why we're answering emails offline. That's why we jump anytime our boss says jump. That's why we say, yeah, sure, I'll travel again. Why? Man, we're eager. We want to grow. We want to we climb that ladder. I tell you what we're eager for. We're eager to be in relationships. That's why you've got six dating apps on your phone. You're like, I've only got four, right? Well, I mean, you're eager. You want to be in a relationship. Somebody hits you up on there, and you think, they, you know, oh, man, he looks like he's got a job, and he's respectable. Let me message him back. I'm not waiting six weeks to message him back. I'm not like, well, I'll message him back once a month if it's not raining, right? And yet we treat Jesus that way. So the question is, how much do you want it? It's challenging. It should be challenging. If you're not growing very much in Christ, and, and you're not pursuing him very much, it's not a mystery. It's not like you're broken spiritually. It's you just don't care that much. Right? This is true of every area of our life. It should be challenging. Jesus is intentionally pressing on us here. But I also think, hear me, I think it's encouraging. Because here, here's what it means. You, you don't have to be wildly intelligent. You don't have to be massively gifted. You don't have to come from some particular family or economic status. If you want to grow in Christ, all you need is desire. That's it. And if you have desire, Jesus will do an incredible work in your life. You don't have to be flawless. You don't have to be sinless. You don't have to be perfect. You just need desire. And if you've got it, Jesus says, look, I'll, I'll fill up your measure and I'll even add more on top of it. Right? That's the good news of what Jesus is saying. If we want to become more like him, he will meet us there. He will give, him, give us himself and he will do a great work in it. So the second thing we learn is that, man, the pace of your sanctification is determined by your desire for sanctification. 
Okay, next parable, verse 26. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Here's the third thing we learn. Number three, your sanctification is a process. Your sanctification is a process. In verse 26, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out, scatters seed, and over time, the seed grows, right? First, it's a a blade, and then an ear, and then full grain. Okay, why is Jesus talking about agriculture, right? Because he's drawing a connection. He's he's creating an analogy, a metaphor, between the way that, man, seeds grow in the ground and the way that the gospel grows in your life. And here's what he's saying. Just as it takes time for crops to grow, so also it takes time for the gospel to grow. Just like it takes time for crops to grow, so also it takes time for the gospel to grow. The seed doesn't turn into full grain overnight. And in the same way, the gospel doesn't start to produce life-transforming characteristics in your life overnight. It takes time. It's a process. But I think a lot of us get discouraged because we forget this. I think a lot of us get discouraged because we forget this. Maybe you've been struggling with some sin in your life for a long time. And you're really discouraged. You're like, you're asking the question, man, why can't I make progress in this? But I bet if we sat down and really hashed it out, like really looked at it and looked at the history, I bet we could find some indications of progress in your life. Right? I bet we could between the influence of the church and maybe a Christian community, your time with God. Like, I bet we could find some indication of progress in your life. Here's the thing. We don't get discouraged because we haven't made any progress. We get discouraged because we haven't made as much progress as we expected. Now, there might be an exception to that, but generally speaking, in my experience, both in my life when I get discouraged and as I counsel other people, talk to other people, it's not that we've made no progress. It's that we haven't made as much progress as we expected. But here's the thing. Jesus said sanctification is like farming. Okay? Sanctification is like farming. Let's think for a minute about the life of a farmer. What does a farmer do? A farmer gets up early. A farmer goes out and works really, really hard. He sows seed. He, he toils over his land. He protects it. Right? What happens? Well, over time, with the right amount of conditions and environments, the seed grows. Now, at first, you can't even see it, really. I mean, if you've ever seen like a seed right when it's sprouting, I mean, it's tiny. It's not very remarkable, very small. But given enough time, given the right conditions, if the farmer keeps at it, what's going to happen? That seed's going to grow up into a huge harvest. Now, what would you conclude if you met a farmer who said, man, I'm just really discouraged. I planted, I planted grain yesterday. Man, I, I watered it. I woke up this morning. Hadn't changed. I'm giving up farming, right? You would conclude he misunderstood the nature of farming, right? You're like, that's not how it works. Had you hung in there, had you given it the amount of time, you would have had a harvest. But here, here's what we need to understand. We do that same thing in our own lives all the time, don't we? We misunderstand the nature of sanctification. We think sanctification should be like a light switch. I struggled with this once. I now turn off the light switch. I no longer struggle with this or turn it on, whichever illustration we use. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's not how it works. Sanctification is not a life switch. Sanctification is like farming. Sanctification is a process. It's like farming rather than fast food, right? It's like the crock pot rather than the microwave. It's like raising a garden rather than going to Harris Teeter, right? Like, it is a process. It takes time. Here's what that means for us. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep getting up. Keep doing the often thankless, not glamorous, faithful work of a gospel farmer. 
Keep cultivating the seed of the gospel in your life because over time it makes a difference. Hear me, slow doesn't mean broken. Slow doesn't mean broken. We think it does. What do you do when your email takes more than three seconds to load? What do you do? Wi-Fi must be down, right? I do the same thing. What do you do if your Amazon package takes more than two days to get here? You're like, they must be overwhelmed at the warehouse, right? I, like, what do you do when you put your Chipotle order in and it says arrive at 5.15 and you get there at 5.15? They're like, we'll have it ready at 9.12. Personal experience, right? You assume something's broken. It usually is. But here's the thing. We assume slow means broken in all of life and it simply doesn't. Because many of the most important things in life, particularly character formation, particularly sanctification, just takes time. Slow doesn't mean broken. Look, parenting is slow. Some days you feel like your kids are really getting it. Some days you're like, they are heathens, right? Like, some days they're like, you know, leading the family in prayer. And other days they're like punching their siblings, right? You're like, I don't know what to do with you. Right, but what's your job as a parent, man, to just over time faithfully sow the word of God into their life? Faithfully sow the word of God into their life every day, day after day, and just trust God to bring growth. And if I were you, I'd get some other farmers working that land, okay? Like, you should be doing it. Get some people in your community, in your missional community to be doing it. Get some young professionals at our church to invest in your kids. Get your kids in our kids' ministry. Get your kids in our forthcoming student ministry. Like, get as many people farming that ground as you can, okay? Parenting is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Man, evangelism is a process. In my experience, You have to pray for, serve, and initiate towards someone for a very long time before they're open to hearing the gospel. In my experience, two years is the magic mark. I don't know why. My wife and I spent two years very intentionally investing in an apartment complex we lived in and in a townhouse community we lived in two separate times. And in both instances, it was the two-year mark where it felt like, man, things started to happen. People that we'd be praying for, serving, initiating towards finally became open to the gospel, right? But it's slow. It's a process. But slow doesn't mean broken. Community is a process. Community is a process. You simply won't form meaningful relationships overnight. But here's what happens. If you went to college, here's probably what you experienced. You probably had really, really meaningful community in college. Now, why is that? Well, it's probably because we all lived in the same place, ate at the same place, went to all the same classes, traveled together, made stupid decisions together. Like, you do everything with a group of people together for four years. Well, of course, those relationships are going to form really quickly because you have a lot of shared experience. But then you get out of college, and what happens? It feels like, I guess you just don't have friends as an adult. I guess you just don't have community as an adult. No, you can have community. It's just harder, and it's slower. But slow doesn't mean broken. But if you press in... If you don't move every two years, I'm in this city for two years, no community. I guess it's the city's fault. It's not the city's fault. It's your fault, right? Like, if you move every two years, I don't have anything for you. Like, people in Portland aren't any better than people in Charlottesville, right? But if you hang in there, if you press in, if you forgive people, if you, man, if you show up, over time, you will build community. Community is a process. Slow doesn't mean broken. All right, number three, your sanctification, both personally, man, in your community, evangelism, parenting, your sanctification is a process. Last thing that we see, verse 30, one more parable. And Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Here's the fourth thing that we learn. Number four, your sanctification begins humbly but ends gloriously. 
Your sanctification begins humbly, but ends gloriously. So Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed is extremely small. I mean, it is extremely small. It is so small, it, you, it was used as an adjective for the word small. So you know how we use the word shrimpy today? And you don't mean like something looks like a shrimp, right? You mean it, it's very small. Well, that's how they would use the word seed, right? They might have said like, that donkey's a little seedy. And they don't mean that donkey has questionable moral character. They mean like, that's a small donkey, okay? Like that's, that's what they meant. So Jesus says, hey, this, the, the mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds, and seed is already something that we all know is really, really small. He said, that is what the kingdom of God is like. That is what sanctification is like in your life. It's small, it's diminutive, it's not impressive. But then it starts to grow. And when the mustard seed grows, it gets really big. I mean, it can be 12 feet tall, four feet wide. I mean, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. You can't miss it. It becomes so big that birds can find refuge in its branches. Here's what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of God in your life and in the world. It starts small, it ends big. It starts slow, it ends fast, it starts humbly, it ends gloriously. This is, this is true personally, right? When you, when you first start following Jesus, you're a mustard seed, right? You don't know anything about the Bible. Prayer makes you really uncomfortable. Tithing freaks you out. And Christian community makes you really peevish. You're like, I don't like these people, right? You're a mustard seed. You feel like you don't know anything. Your faith is not, you know, towering and really impressive. It's not like people at work are like, oh, man, he's like, man, what a godly guy, right? No, they can't tell any difference other than like, he does stuff on Sundays now. I don't get it, right? I mean, you are a mustard seed. But if you stick with it, if you keep after it, if you do just the normal, ordinary, everyday means of grace of trying to read your Bible, living in Christian community, being involved in the local church, repenting of sin, unremarkable things, you'll grow. And you'll grow, and you'll grow, and you'll grow, and you'll grow. And then one day, this will happen to you. You'll be at church, and someone will come up to you and say, hey, will you mentor me? And you'll look around, assuming they're talking to someone else. And you're like, what do you mean, will you mentor me? And they're just like, you just seem to really, you, like, you seem to understand what it means to follow Christ. And you'll kind of laugh at yourself. What happened? Your mustard seed grew. And now, all of a sudden, there's somebody else in the church that's looking at you and say, oh, man, they really seem to know what it means to follow Christ. I want to follow them. How did you get there? It wasn't overnight. It was day by day. It was faithful obedience in the same direction over time. It's a lot more like farming than it is a Silicon Valley startup. Okay? It's not fast at first. It's small. It's slow, and it's humble, but it ends gloriously. Um, on July 18th, so a couple Sundays from now, make sure you're here, uh, I'm going to get to introduce you to three elder candidates. Okay? So these are three men that Justin and I have been investing in for the last year. Uh, to evaluate and prepare them, and I'm going to recommend them to you that you vote to affirm them as new elders of our church, so to join Pastor Justin and I in becoming uh, part of our elder team. Um, and when you see these men, you, you're not going to be shocked at all. You're going to be like, that makes total sense, okay? Like all of you are, because they're godly. They're super godly. They're incredible examples of what it means to follow Christ, love your spouse, raise your kids, serve the church, and they are a blessing to our church. And some of you even have filled out recommend, recommendations for them. And to a person, every one of you has said, absolutely, I affirm this man. I have no, I have no hesitation. But you know what's really funny? Every single one of these guys that I approached about joining the elder process was like, are you sure? Why? Because they remembered the seed stage. 
they remember themselves as a teenager. They remember themselves as a college student. They remember themselves as like a young professional trying to figure life out and kind of stumbling through it. What happened? They grew. And they grew, 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 not all at once, but over time, and now they are towering plants of righteousness, and they are good for our church, and they are good for the world. What happened? Started small, ended big. Started slow, ended fast. Started humbly, ended gloriously. This is how sanctification works. This is how the kingdom grows in your life. And that's good news today. That means that if you don't feel like a very big tree right now, that's okay. You might one day. That means if you feel really small, you're not doing something wrong. Jesus would just say, hey, press in. Keep growing day by day by day by day. And one day you'll look back and think, man, how did I get here? But here's the thing. The kingdom of God also works this way in the world. The kingdom of God also works this way in the world. I mean, think about it. When Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he leave behind? 120 followers led by a group of Galilean fishermen, one of which recently denied him when the chips were down. I mean, not a great start. Mustard seed, very small. Less people than our members of our church. And yet, in 300 years, that group of people empowered by the Spirit of God had taken the gospel, this historical reality, had taken the gospel to every part of the known world. And so many people had become Christians across the Roman Empire that in 312 AD, Constantine, the emperor, became a Christian as a political move. He's like, oh man, like half of my empire is Christian. I better become a Christian so they'll support me. What happened? Started small, ended big. Started slow, ended fast. Started humbly, ended gloriously. Or think about the First Great Awakening. First Great Awakening, just so you know, is the greatest spiritual revival that has ever happened in Western church history but it started small. To quote one author, in the 1730s and 1740s in England, quote, in the decade between 1730 and 40, the life of England was foul with moral corruption and spiritual decay. The gospel had been obscured, abused, and abandoned to the point that none of the people considered it relevant to their lives at all, which is why on Easter morning during this decade, one of the most historical churches in London had six people at their Easter service. That's a bad Easter service. That is, where, that is where England was. That was the spiritual climate of the day, rife with atheism, rife with deism, rife with man, moral relativism. Injustice reigned. Poverty reigned. Man, the gin craze was going on. Alcoholism was tearing families apart. Bad news. And then God started to move. And it started really small. It started with a couple of students at Oxford University. They started to pray. And after they, they prayed, they started to share. And eventually, after they, they started sharing, they started to preach. And people started to come. And so many people came that they couldn't fit them in the church buildings. And so they said, well, I guess we can't fit them in the church building. I'll go stand on a tombstone outside, and I'll preach in the graveyard. And then so many people were coming that they couldn't keep there. So they said, I'll just go into a field over there, and I'll just preach the gospel there. And what happened is that God arose in his mighty power, and the greatest renewal in church history occurred. And men like George Whitfield and John Wesley and Charles Wesley took the gospel from England beyond its borders into North America, and our entire church history in North America traces itself back to that, to that occurrence. It all goes back there. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people repented and believed in Christ, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them 
surrendered to a call to ministry, and hundreds of churches were planted that planted hundreds more churches, and you can trace almost every single church in Charlottesville back to that movement of God. What happened? It started small, it ended big, it started slow, it ended fast, it started humbly, it ended gloriously. I don't know if God is going to allow us to see renewal today like he did then, and I pray for it. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like a mustard seed. Sometimes being a Christian in our society today feels like a mustard seed. And it feels like there are values and behaviors that are antithetical to the gospel. That are being pressed upon me and pressed upon the church every single day from every single angle. And it is overwhelming. So here's what I want to remind you. If you ever feel that way like I do. Here's what I want to remind you. The kingdom of God starts small but ends big. It starts small, but it ends big. It starts slow, but it ends fast. It starts humbly, but friends, it ends gloriously. And that is why we planted Center Church. And that is why we're going to plant other churches. And that is why, come hell or high water, we're going to take a swing at this thing. It's like, if we're going to go down, we're going to go down swinging. I'm not watching the ball go by. We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to send missionaries. We are going to reach college students. I'm going to preach from this stage until somebody pulls me down. We're going to say, God, bring rain. We're sowing the seed. We're doing the work. We're believing your promises. Bring rain. Revive this nation like you revived England 300 years ago because you're able. There is nothing that is different today than was different then. God can do it. But I don't know if he will. I hope he does. God, I hope he does. I hope he does. I hope that we get to see the times of Wesley and Whitfield. But even if we don't, Friends, our hope is that one day we are assured of seeing a spiritual revival. And it is the day that King Jesus will return to earth and will consummate his kingdom. And he will cast all of his opponents into the abyss. And he will wipe away every trace and stain of sin. And he will reunite his people with their loved ones. And parents who have lost children will be reunited. And spouses who have lost spouses will be reunited. And saints who have walked through chronic illness and who have walked through emotional trauma and who have walked through injustice and who have walked through pain for all their lives will be set free from it. And Jesus will wipe away every tear from every eye and sin will be no more. Hear me, that is a reality. That is not a pipe dream. That is not wishful thinking. Friends, the consummation of the kingdom was secured when Jesus overcame the grave. Hear me, the empty tomb points to an occupied throne. You understand that? The fact that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, the logical conclusion is that he is on the throne, and one day he will return from the throne as King Jesus, and he will consummate his kingdom. How would your life change? How would your week change? How would your perspective change, your marriage, your friendships? How would your anxiety change if you really believe down at the heart that every second, minute, hour, and day of your life is marching towards that glorious conclusion? I think it would fill you with eagerness. I think it would fill you with the desire to say, I want to look like Jesus. I want to look like Jesus so that when King Jesus comes back, I'm excited to see him. Friends, the empty tomb points us to an occupied throne, which gives us hope that one day the king will return. And until that day, then let us labor to become more like him and for our witness in the world and for our own joy. Father, thank you for your word. That it challenges us. God, it's good that it challenges us. 
that it gives us hope, that it sets us free from fear, and that it gives us an eternal perspective. God, fill us with faith. Fill us with faith that one day the clouds will break open, the trumpet will sound, and the twinkling of an eye, you will return. You will consummate your kingdom. You will wipe away every tear from every eye, and we will reign with you forever. God, that is the destiny of your people. Help us to feel it. Help us to believe it. And I pray that it would fuel us to become more like you in this world. We love you. Pray this in your name.